So this morning, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 14. We're continuing through the book of John. We've been working through it now for uh, quite a while, since last year. Uh, We're going to be in John 14, uh, verses 15 to 26. So if you want to start turning there, uh, you can. Hopefully, uh, you've got a Bible. If you don't, there are some in the pew backs in front of you. You can use one of those. Uh, John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It's after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's just before Acts. Um, so while you're turning there, though, I'll, I want to ask you maybe if you can uh, relate to this. Um, you've, you've probably noticed how, and maybe you even remember how when you were a small child, um, if, when, how whenever you would go into unfamiliar or uncomfortable or even scary places, as long as your dad was with you, you felt safe, or maybe, I know some of you didn't have, uh, grow up with your father around, but it may have been a grandfather, or it may have been an older brother, some sort of father figure that you had in your life, and whenever he was with you, and you would go into uh, an unfamiliar or a scary place, uh, you'd feel safe. I know that's what it was like for me. I think for small children, knowing that their dads are with them brings them a lot of comfort, uh, even when they're in uh, scary situations. Um, and so I think children have this sense that whatever scary thing may be there, it's not stronger than my dad. You know, even though uh, I don't even know if my dad, you know, I thought my dad was the strongest person in the world when I was a kid, right? You don't know any better. But you just think, I'm safe as long as he's with me. As long as he's around, then I don't have to worry about anything else that's going on around me. I know that I'm safe, and he'll fight off whatever it is that would seek to try to harm me. Um, And in today's passage, Jesus comforts his disciples in much the same way. They were unnerved that he had told them that he was leaving them. And Jesus knew that he was about to die on the cross for their sin and for the sins of, of all who would ever trust in him. But his disciples did not yet understand this. All they knew is that Jesus had said, I'm going away. And so for them, they were afraid. He knew that they were in need of encouragement because they were about to walk through this dark period of losing him. And so Jesus comforted them with an incredible promise of his abiding presence. And this promise isn't just for them, it's for everyone who believes in him. So we're going to read this promise, we're going to read Jesus' words in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 26. Uh, After I read, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Here is what God's Word says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that you've given us. I thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit. Um, Holy Spirit, we, we worship you, we love you, we thank you that you are able to teach us and bring to all our remembrance all um, that God has said. We pray that you would teach us this morning and help us to understand your word. 
Because apart from you, we can't. Apart from you, we don't. I don't. I certainly don't have the ability to teach. I don't have the ability to change anybody's life, anybody's heart, and we don't even have the ability to read scripture and to understand it and apply it to our lives unless you help us, unless you give us eyes to see, unless you give us ears to hear. So I pray that you do that this morning, God. I pray that you would graciously teach us, Lord, and and sanctify us and encourage us and help us, God, to grow in Christ likeness. And I pray for those who are here that are not born again, that don't have the, the indwelling, ever-present Spirit of God inside of them, who don't know you. I pray that today, God, you would give them eyes to see. I pray that today they would come to trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and that they'd receive this gift of the Holy Spirit that we're going to talk about. This amazing promise of the presence of God being with them forever and ever, wherever they go. Lord, I, I just pray that you'd help me this morning. Um, God, I need your help to be able to teach. I need your help. Lord, I'm, I'm just a weak vessel. Um, and apart from you, Lord, I can do nothing. So I pray that you'd speak through your word, Lord, and help me to get out of the way and help me just to point all of us to your word. Help me to point all of us to Jesus. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, ultimately, this passage is here as an encouragement and as a reassurance to followers of Jesus that God is with us as we await Jesus' return, even in the darkest of times. God is always with us. And there are a few realities that are more encouraging and more comforting than that. I mean, we, we love passages like Isaiah 41, 13, where God says, I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. There's, there's something within us that, that longs to have that peace and that assurance and that comfort of knowing that God Almighty is with us and He's protecting us and nothing can harm us as long as He's with us, just like a little child who has that confidence when he's with his father. Or Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is by my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That, that's the kind of comfort that God is, is promising us this morning, that Jesus is talking about this morning through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's in knowing that God is with us that enables us to have an abiding peace and joy that, that's there no matter what we walk through, no matter what our circumstances are like around us. You probably remember many of you the words of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for what? For you are with me. That's the difference, right? That God is with us. Now the problem, though, is that like the disciples, many times even Christians lack the assurance that God is with them. Can anybody relate? Sometimes it doesn't feel like he's with us, does it? The main point and the encouragement that I want to give you this morning, and this is what I think that the thrust of this passage is teaching, is that God is ever-present with those who love him and keep his commands. God is ever-present with those who love him and keep his commands. And so this morning, we're going to walk through this passage to help us understand what God's word has to say about this problem of us feeling like God isn't with us, okay? We're going to answer three questions, and this is going to be our three points. Uh, who does God promise to be ever-present with? How is God ever-present with them? And how does God's indwelling presence help us, okay? Who does God promise to be ever-present with? How is God ever-present with them? And how does His indwelling presence help us? So let's answer that first question, who does God promise to be ever-present with? The reason we need to ask this question is because Jesus makes it clear that this promise of His indwelling presence is not for everyone. This is a particular promise for a particular people. In verse 17, Jesus says that the world cannot receive the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, because, He says, it neither sees Him nor knows Him. So this promise is for Jesus' disciples. It's for Christians. It's namely for those who love Him and keep His commands. 
Verse 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him or show myself to him. So there's, a, there's an essential relationship between love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus. And this doesn't mean that obeying Jesus is the same thing as loving Jesus. Rather, Jesus' point is that obedience is the natural outflow of our love for him. Okay, Love for Jesus is manifested in obeying his commands. Obedience is the fruit of a love for Christ. And Jesus emphasizes this four times in our passage. I don't know if you saw that repetition in there, but in verse 15, in verse 21, in verse 23, and then negatively in verse 24. So he says in 15, 21 to 23, and 23, something to the effect of, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And then he puts it negatively in verse 24. He says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So this is clearly a, a persistent theme here in this passage, isn't it? You guys see that? It's easy for someone to say that they love Jesus. There are millions, tens of millions of people, maybe even billions around the world who would say that they love Jesus. But it's our actions that demonstrate whether that love is genuine. So if there was a man who repeatedly said, I love my wife, but he neglected her or even abused her consistently, you wouldn't believe him, right? You wouldn't have reason to believe him. But if you saw a man with a wife who was terminally ill and bedridden and you saw him meeting her every need and staying by her side and doing everything that he could to make her comfortable at great sacrifice to himself, you would have no reason to doubt the sincerity of his love, would you? Because you would see it, right? This man loves his wife. Obedience to Jesus' commands reflects love for him because it reflects that we trust him in his word. So when Jesus gives us commands, he doesn't do so to burden us. He gives us commands for our good. And those who know him and love him recognize this and are happy to obey. Not, not to obey begrudgingly, not to obey to earn his favor, but we obey in response to the love that he has first shown us. We really, we can't escape the implications here. What, what this passage is teaching us is that if you consistently disobey Jesus' commands, then despite how much you may insist, you do not love him. You may love a different Jesus of your own imagination, whose priorities look a lot like yours, but you don't love the real Jesus if you don't obey him. Matt Carter is a pastor and an author. He comments on this passage. He says, loving Jesus is not like bargain hunting at a garage sale. You can't comb through all that he says and then pick whatever commands you like, disregarding any that you find unappealing. Love for Jesus means obeying even the most difficult commands. So those who love Jesus live a life characterized by obedience to his word. It doesn't mean that his disciples are perfect. Jesus is getting at our hearts. He's talking about our hearts, okay? He is those who love Jesus aren't perfect, but they have a genuine desire to obey Him. So when true disciples disobey, there's a genuine remorse over their sin, and they repent of their disobedience and seek to align their lives to God's Word. So if you claim to love Jesus, but your lifestyle, the general pattern of your life is in direct contradiction to His commands, at best... You are dangerously straying off the path towards destruction at best. And at worst, you are deceived and you don't love him at all. Don't depend on being born in a Christian nation or being born into a Christian family or a prayer that you prayed one time or being baptized as a child for the evidence of your salvation. If you're walking in disobedience to Jesus, then Wake up and repent this morning. Turn away from your sin and begin to trust Him. Plead with God to help you know and love Jesus as you ought to. As you ought to. Love for Jesus is 
manifested in obeying his commands, but here's the deal. Love for Jesus is also our motivation for obeying his commands, okay? The answer, if your lifestyle is characterized by disobedience to Jesus' commands and you're not, you're not loving him by obeying him, the answer isn't, well, I just need to buckle down and try harder. I need to try really hard to earn Jesus' love. The answer, rather, is to recognize that I need to first understand his love towards me, that Christ died on the cross for my sins even when I wasn't worthy and even when I didn't deserve his grace. And in response to that, my heart rises up in love to him and has a, a glad desire to obey him and to follow him wherever he calls me to go. So the answer is to looking to the goodness of Jesus, to looking to the beauty of Jesus and being more captivated by him than all the other things of the world that you've been turning to. That's the answer if you're walking in disobedience right now, if you're not living a life that's pleasing to God. You see, that's what I mean when I say that, that love for Jesus is our motivation for obeying His commands. So disciples don't, we can't earn His favor. We can't earn the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, obedience without love is kind of like trying to bribe God. It supposes that you can buy God's favor with your good works. And that it gives the appearance of honoring God, but it actually dishonors Him because it's discounting just how good and merciful and loving He is. And it also discounts just how holy and just He is. Here's, the, here's what I mean by that. God is the creator of all things, and He's worthy of all of our honor and all of our praise. But every single one of us has failed to obey God's commands. Every single one of us has dishonored Him. We have all foolishly and pridefully rejected His word and gone our own way many, many times. Every single one of us. And God is perfectly holy and just. He's not, he cannot just clear the guilty. He can't just sweep sin under the rug and act like it didn't happen. Sin must be dealt with. It's blasphemous to suppose that you could bribe God into forgiving your sin with good works. Well, I'm just going to try to be a good person from here on out, and that'll make up for all the bad I've done. No, you can't do that. You can't do that. Someone must, someone must take the punishment in our place. The only way we can be saved is by grace. The only way for God to show mercy to us instead of condemning us as we deserve is if someone dies in our place who can pay for all of our sins, and that's why Jesus came. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was born in the flesh so that He could die on the cross for our sin. And then three days later, He rose from the dead, and He is alive forevermore. And because of that, whoever trusts in Him will also live with Him forever. And God did all of this simply because He desired to pour out His extravagant grace on undeserving sinners that we might praise Him forever and ever. God gets the glory, we get eternal, everlasting joy. The greatest win-win in the history of the world. And that is the motivation for our obedience. Like, do you, like, I really, do you have joy in your life? Like, if, you're, if you profess to be a Christian, I feel like there are so many people who say they're Christians and they just don't have any joy. It's just discontent. Discontent, they're sad, they're depressed, no joy, no gladness, going through the motions, putting on the smiling face. That's not what God wants for you. God wants you to know how good and glorious and merciful He is, how worthy of your worship He is. Do you understand just how close you were to an eternity separated from God in hell forever? You were on the precipice, hanging over by a thread, and the thread was the grace of God. And it's only by His grace that He plucked you out of the depths. He raised you from being spiritually dead, and He infused life into you. You have eternal life forever with Jesus now. That's why you serve Him. Why are you miserable? Why are you depressed? Why do you not have joy? There's, we have good news this morning, church. We have reason to rejoice and to be glad, not to be discontent. Yes, we're going to face light momentary afflictions here in this life. Who cares? This stuff is temporary. Your job is temporary. Your house is temporary. Even your earthly family is temporary. The kingdom of God is forever. Stop looking at stuff that perishes. Have joy in your life. That's what motivates obedience. So we, we're not obeying out of 
oh, you know, I've got to, you know, whip my self on the back like a slave, you know, oh, I've got to go and do this for God, and hopefully God will accept me, and man, the church isn't supposed to be full, filled with Eeyores. It's supposed to be filled with people who are glad and who rejoice in their salvation, and so again, like, man, if you're, if you're just in this place, you're like, Jared, I just don't feel that. I, I hear what you're saying, I want that, but I don't know what to do to get it. Just plead with Jesus to help open your eyes. Say, Jesus, open my eyes to your goodness. Open my eyes to your grace. Help me, God. I don't want to be like this anymore. I don't want to have a joyless life or a life that has no peace. I want to know you and see you like I've maybe never seen you before. Help me, Holy Spirit. Open my eyes. Teach me from your word. Recognize how desperate and dependent you are and call out to him for grace. Man, please don't, don't. Don't let, this, don't let the sun go down today without doing that if that's you this morning. If you, if you want to conquer sin in your life and you want to obey Jesus, don't just try harder to obey, but stoke the flames of your love for him. Be amazed that this holy God who owes us nothing but wrath would want to dwell with us despite our sin. Like he's promising to dwell with us forever. <laughs> like that's crazy. We're going to talk about that in just a second a little bit more. But if you do love Jesus, just recognize that it's only because he's loved you and graciously opened your eyes. That's the only reason that we love him. We wouldn't love Jesus if he had not first opened our eyes by his grace. And he's given us an amazing promise, his abiding permanent presence with us. So let's talk about that second question. How does that work? Like, how is God ever present with us? What does that mean? Well, this is the same question that the, that the disciples had. After Jesus promised that he would love and manifest himself to those who love him and keep his commands, Judas, not, not the betraying Judas, but Judas, the, Judas son of James, asked, he said, how is it that you are going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So basically, they didn't understand how Jesus was going to be with them and yet not visible to the world. And so listen to Jesus' uh, response to that question in verse 23. He says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So what Jesus is saying here is that God, through the Holy Spirit, will dwell within everyone who believes. Did you know that if you're a born-again Christian this morning, that God dwells within you? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity affirms that there is one God and that He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the work of creation and providence and salvation, each person of the Trinity plays a distinct role, and yet they're completely united in, in purpose and in will. And both Jesus and the Holy Spirit play distinct roles in our salvation. And it's important to understand this. So Jesus, He atoned for our sin by dying for us on the cross. He rose bodily from the grave. He's our high priest in heaven, among other things. The Holy Spirit does not do those things. Okay? The Holy Spirit did not die on the cross for your sin. Jesus died on the cross for your sin. But the Holy Spirit, He plays roles like He regenerates believers. So He's the one that causes us to be born again. He's the one that gave you spiritual sight to see and to understand the gospel. The Holy Spirit sanctifies believers. He makes us holy and He empowers us to obey God's commands. The Holy Spirit is also called the helper in this passage. It's a term that refers to a legal advocate or someone who helps another in court. The Holy Spirit helps us by strengthening us, encouraging us, and sustaining us through trials and temptations. He ensures that believers do not fall away, but that we endure to the end. You know, before... Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples had depended on Jesus to help them. And the thought of Jesus going away would have been unnerving. That is why the gift of the Holy Spirit is so precious. Because although Jesus would no longer walk with them in the flesh, He would dwell in them by the Spirit. And that promise goes for every single born-again believer. Believer. 
I don't know if you've ever like wished, like, man, I wish I lived during the time of the disciples. You know, I wish like Jesus was here before me in the flesh and that I could, you know, see him do miracles and see this or that. It'd be so much easier to be a Christian. I feel like my faith would be so much greater. But you know that Jesus actually says in two chapters later in John 16, 7, he tells the disciples, it's actually good for me, good for you that I'm going away. Because if I go away, then I can send you the helper. You see, what he was trying to help the disciples understand is like, yes, you've been walking with me, but you need to understand something. I'm going to dwell in you. Like, it's not just going to be God with us, but God in us. That's the promise that we have, and we're partakers in that. Like, we, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us now. If anyone loves me, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Man, the, the, the presence of God is a spectacular thread to follow throughout Scripture. If you look at the theme of the presence of God from Genesis to Revelation, it's really amazing. When, when you open up just the first book of Genesis, you see that the, the presence of God, God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. But then due to sin, due to their sin, Adam and Eve sinned and they were banished from the garden and banished from God's presence. But God, by his grace, he chose a man named Abraham and said, from his descendants, uh, I'm going to choose a people for myself. And so God chose Israel who had descended from Abraham and promised to be with them and to be their God. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and then God's presence dwelt with them starting at Sinai in the tabernacle. And then he continued with them into the promised land, and King Solomon built a temple, a more permanent structure, and the presence of God dwelt in the temple amongst the people of Israel. But God, his presence dwelt among them from a distance through the mediation of a priesthood. And through sacrifices, not just anyone could walk into God's presence in the tabernacle or the temple. Only one man once a year, the high priest, could do so. And it had to be through, the, through an atoning sacrifice so that he could go in and seek forgiveness for the people. That's the only way God could dwell with his people. It had to be from a distance. But then in John chapter 1, we read this amazing development in the story of Scripture. We read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so or tabernacled among us. And so the presence of God came in the person of Jesus Christ. So no longer, when Jesus came, no longer did the presence of God dwell in a temple, in a house made with hands, but Jesus said something greater than the temple is here. He came and tabernacled among us. In Colossians 2.9, we read that in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. The presence of God came in the person of Christ. That's why Jesus said earlier in this chapter, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But now, the presence of God dwells within Christians. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out upon the church in, the, in fulfillment of God's promises. So not only has God come to earth in the person of Christ, He now dwells within His people through the person of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.22, he says, You... The church are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are the tabernacle of God, the temple of God. God dwells in us. For Christians, we are no longer separated from God. He dwells within us, within us by His Spirit, so the curse of the garden has been reversed. We're no longer banished from His presence. He's with us as the church. Those who once were banished from walking with God in paradise now walk by the Spirit of God within us as we await for Jesus to return and to make all things new. And a new and a greater Eden awaits. The presence of the Holy Spirit within us is the guarantee that this promised inheritance will be ours. So if God dwells within us as His people then what are the implications of that? How does His indwelling presence help believers right now? I already briefly mentioned a few of these, but I think it's helpful to clarify exactly what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of Christians and in the church. So I just want to, and this is not an exhaustive list of how the Holy Spirit aids us, but I want to mention four things briefly. Um, first of all, the Holy Spirit creates new life in us. He regenerates us. So Jesus says in 
John 3, 5, and 6, he says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who gives new life to spiritually dead sinners. Once we were blind, but now we see. And the reason that we see is through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. So apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't be born again. He's the one that begins, who starts new spiritual life in us. The Holy Spirit creates new life in us, and the Holy Spirit also enables us to understand God's Word. It's another role that He plays in the life of believers. In verses uh, 25 and 26 of our passage, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So, this is a specific promise here to the 11 disciples that alludes to their, uh, the role that they're going to have in writing the words of Scripture. Uh, so, before the Holy Spirit was given, much of what Jesus said and did was hidden from their understanding. And you kind of, you see that as you read through the Gospels, that Jesus will teach the disciples and they'll consistently not get it right? They won't understand. And sometimes we can read that and go, these silly disciples, how did they not get this? Well, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you now, and they didn't at the time. You have to remember that. Jesus was walking with them, but they did not yet have the Spirit of God that had been given to them. We do. So in a way, like, uh, we've got an incredible advantage because we're able to read God's Word. We're able to understand what God's Word means and apply it to our lives because we've got the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We see that come about in the lives of the disciples because after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended, the Holy Spirit taught them. Like For example, uh, in John 2, verses 18 and 22, Jesus was talking about, uh, he was addressing the crowds and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And everybody there thought he was talking about the physical temple. So did the disciples, right? But he was talking about his body. And in John 2, 22, we read this. John comments, he kind of adds a little bit of like a a narration here, and he says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's a fulfillment of exactly what we see here in John 14, 26, right? He said, what is the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. He's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. That's exactly what happens. So they start thinking back about and remembering all these things that Jesus said and going, oh, that's what he meant. He was talking about his body. He's the Word made flesh. He's God. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to understand God's Word. That's why you can have two people who can read the Bible and one person can go, nah, this is, this is garbage. I don't believe this. And you can have another person go, this is incredible. This is, this is the truth. This is God's Word and can be totally transformed by it. One has the Holy Spirit, one doesn't. That's the difference. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned or discerned by the Spirit. Okay? Every time you read the Bible and understand it rightly, it's a miracle. So I would encourage all of us to spend time thanking the Holy Spirit for enabling us to read the Bible. Before you read Scripture, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Pray through Scripture as you're reading it. Never take for granted that you can read God's Word and you've got the Spirit of God dwelling within you, helping you to understand what you're reading and applying it to your life. That's amazing. Another role the Holy Spirit plays in, our li- in the lives of believers is that the Holy Spirit empowers us to obey God's Word. So God's gracious gift of the Holy Spirit enables us to obey the very commands that He gives. We could never obey God's commands in our own strength. Our flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. and We can try as hard as we can, but we can't conform to the perfection of God's law. So God has given us His Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. This is the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 makes clear this promise. It says, it says this, God says, I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So that's the promise of regeneration. I'm going to remove your old, cold, stony heart that didn't believe me, that didn't love me, that was hostile to me, that was a sinner, and I'm going to put in a new heart of flesh. So I'm going to make you born again. And then he says in verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. (laughs) That's amazing. God literally gives us the power to do the very things that he's commanding us to do. Like we couldn't even do them. Do you see? Like it's crazy for us to think that we can earn salvation from God. We're powerless to do anything. We can't even obey God's word without God giving us his Holy Spirit to enable us to do so. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And this, just look at the grace of God. He's doing everything for us. He literally says, I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So if you're a believer, the only reason you have a desire to please God with your life, to honor Him, to seek His face, to turn away from sin, that's the Spirit of God within you, giving you those desires. The reason that you feel a deep conviction when you sin against God and you feel this, like, I can't just keep doing this. Like, I, like I feel horrible. Like, I can't stand continuing to live in sin. That's the grace of God. That's the Holy Spirit within you convicting you and saying, flee, turn away from these things. Get back on the path of obedience. The Spirit of God is keeping you. He's helping you. If you don't have that when you're living in sin, you're in danger. If you can live in sin and just be like, yeah, whatever, and it doesn't affect you, that's a very dangerous position to be in because it's an indicator that you may not have the Spirit of God at all. And if you keep going down that path, you probably don't. And you need to pray and beg God to convict you of your sin. Beg Him. Be thankful for that, church, that we've got like the Holy Spirit who enables us to obey God's Word. Last thing I'll mention here. Um, the Holy Spirit assures us of God's love. The Holy Spirit assures us of God's love. This is a, just an amazing uh, role that the Holy Spirit has in the lives of Christians. So the, the thrust, remember, of this passage is that God is ever-present with those who love Him and keep His commands. Jesus is comforting us with his, the promise of His abiding presence. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. God has given us the Holy Spirit to comfort us and to reassure us that He loves us and that we're never alone as believers. Romans 8, 15, and 16 says this. It says, God did not give you, or you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's that's an amazing truth, isn't it? That the Holy Spirit plays that role in our lives. He bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He reassures us that we're children of God. How does he do that? How how does he practically give us this assurance? Well, Paul says there, he says that he bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. So what this means is that it's the Holy Spirit who transfers us from a, a slave identity to a son identity. Okay? In Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin or to death. Instead, we are sons of God. We inherently come to know and to understand that we're not orphans, that we're sons of God and we're co-heirs with Christ. We, don't, we no longer see God as a scary judge who we're just trying to please so that He doesn't smash us with a hammer, but we come to see Him as Abba. Father, we desire to know Him, we want to seek Him. That's when you have that desire rising up in you and you say, God, I want to know you, Abba, Father, I want to know you. That's the Spirit of God within you bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. We intuitively as believers know this because of the witness of the Holy Spirit. There's going to be times where you're going to waver. Yes, there's times where you may come into doubt as a believer and you may struggle. Like, does God really love me that way? And you may struggle with fears of condemnation, but that's why God reassures us with His Word. That's why we have promises like Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we have promises like Romans 8.15 and 16. 
where the Apostle Paul writes and reminds us, hey, you don't have a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You don't need to fear sin or death anymore. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you would not cry out to God, Abba, Father. You would not love Him and treasure Him and obey Him. You'd still be enslaved to the fear of death, still trying to justify yourself before God and still in rebellion against Him. But if you are a believer, if you're a child of God, you're no longer a slave. You're a son. So this morning we've seen that God is ever-present with those who love Him and keep His commands. We've seen that He's ever-present with us through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen that the Holy Spirit helps us by giving us new spiritual life, by enabling us to understand God's Word, by enabling us to obey God's commands, and by assuring us of God's love. Um, we're going to do a little short time now of Q&A. We're going to try this this morning. We've done this once before last year. And so I'm going to ask Thomas and Chad to kind of just be available towards the front. And we're going to kind of, all the elders are going to be available. And what we're going to do is we're just going to field a couple of these questions. And these are questions that hopefully were, did they come in, Jen? Yes? Okay, good. All right. So let me see if I can pull this up. Do we, uh, how many do we have? Oh, they're coming in one at a time. Okay, I see. So we're still trying to work out the kinks. What? Seven? Okay, all right, awesome. Um, okay, so we're going to go ahead and just start. Um, oops, I'm trying to pull. It's hard to see them all. All right, so one of the first ones that came in is, what does it mean that we are in Jesus like it says in verse 20? So I'll read uh, verse 20 right there. It's a great question too, by the way. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Verse 20. So, and this is, a, this is actually a theme that's going to come up a lot over the next couple of chapters. Uh, in John chapter 17 in a few weeks, we're going to talk about this a whole lot because this is a theme that's going to come up again. Uh, and what Jesus is referring to is our, our union with Christ, Okay. And so union with Christ means that uh, by faith, when you place your faith in Jesus, you become united to him uh, in everything that he is. So because he died on the cross, his death on the cross was your judgment for sin. Because you're united to him, because he's been risen from the dead, you also too will live with him. Because you're united to him by faith, you're a co-heir with Christ, Scripture says. So that means that everything that belongs to Jesus, including his perfect spotless righteousness, now belongs to us. As believers, that's what Jesus is referring to when he says, you are in me and I am in you. So like, really verse 20 is incredible because what he's saying is he's saying that we are as believers are as united with him as the son is with the father. That's what he says. He says in verse 20, I, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. So you are just as united with Christ as the son is with the father. That's kind of mind-blowing. I can't even really explain that, but I'm just going to leave it at that. That's pretty amazing. So, um, okay, so here's a question, um, and I'll just kind of feel this for all of us. In the dark moments of depression, what can we do to remind ourselves that God is ever-present? How do you encourage other believers that often feel very alone and need to break past their feelings? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've actually been thinking about this recently, um, particularly because we do have people who struggle with depression in our church, and um, and so I get to serve people like that often. Uh, one of the things I thought about in the sermon was uh, reading broadly in the scriptures, uh, meaning like you don't just sit down and like read a couple of verses and study those. That's a good practice, but one of the ways you can see the big themes of God and how God helps his people and comes to their aid is, is read broadly in Scripture. See, pick up on like those themes that Jared was talking about in the Scripture or it, throughout the Scriptures. He talked about the presence of God. Like, how, do you, how do you see the presence of God throughout Scripture? How do you see it from the garden to the new creation? 
Well, you have to read broadly, and so that's why we give you a reading plan, and that's why we help people, you know, read more broadly in their Bibles. And so sit down and read a whole letter, like read all of Paul's letter to the Philippians and just see how uh, theology shows up in how we live in the world. Oh, in, in the camera. Oh, okay, okay. Um, the other thing I, I think was really, really super helpful uh, with uh, dark days and really seeing the goodness of God is uh, seeing how the, uh, I learned this, this phrase, the DNA of God's promises show up in Scripture, sort of like themes, but like when, when Paul starts his letter and he says, grace and peace to you, like think about what that really means in the context of all of Scripture. Like God has promised to be gracious to his people and bring peace to his people all the way back in numbers. And, and that promise shows up in the first parts of some of the letters to God's people in the New Testament. So seeing like the, the DNA of God's promises all throughout Scripture is also really helpful. And, and you know, you go, well, you know, it's dark days, Thomas. I'm, I'm not reading your scriptures. Well, then, brothers and sisters, you not only need to be reading your Bibles, but you need to be people, have people around you to encourage you to read the Bible. So that's what that's my thoughts on that. Do you have anything? I just wanted to add kind of along the lines of what you were just saying that God gifts us with the body of Christ for that purpose so that we can reflect his love into each other's lives. And if we're doing that, it's going to hard to be hard to be depressed amongst God's love reflected, you know, to and through each other. Um, so this question asks, can those who do not know or love him keep his commandments? Um, so my my short answer would be uh, not in not in the way that keeps the true righteousness. Because Jesus said the whole law can be summed up in these commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so you could follow the letter of the law. You could go through the motions of keeping uh, you know, uh, you know, some of the commands. But if you don't love him, if you don't love him with all your heart, then you have not kept the law. And ultimately, you may be obeying, o- obeying, but it's not out of a heart of love for God, which is the entire point of the law, is that we love and honor and glorify God. So in that sense, I would say, no, you cannot actually keep God's commands without, no- without knowing and loving him. Um, anything y'all to add? Uh, I would just add that, you know, you go, well, like, I think like sometimes we think about good people and we won't get into that part of the conversation, but it's like people do good things. And oftentimes we think about good things. It's like, well, that seems like an act of obedience to God's word. And you go, well, are they obeying God's word? And a lot of times the reality of that is oftentimes people who do good things that look like obedience to God's word are not rightly motivated. Their heart isn't changed to the point of being able to do it in obedience to God. The other thing I would say is that we're not as... We praise God by his common grace that we are not as evil as we could be. Okay? So there, there, are, thing, there are places in people's lives where it shows up as looks like obedience. But that's God's common grace on their lives of them not being as evil as they could be. And that goes for me as it does for anybody else outside of this building. Uh, God is commonly gracious to us. So that's good news. Okay, we'll do one more. Um, we had some great ones come in. We can't get to all of them. We'll do one more. How do you know if you're truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit and not just morally affected by your sin? Chad, do you want to start first? Yeah, no pressure, right? That, that's a good one. And I think uh, I often think of these things simply, but I think it it reflects, like Jared was talking about during his sermon, it, it reflects in your actions. Um, if you are truly a part of Christ, you're going to, you know, the Spirit's going to work within you, and you're going to want to obey Him out of love, and that's going to be apparent in how you live your life. And like Jared said, there will be times when you're not living that out well, but it's gonna, you're going to be convicted by that, and you're going to you're going to hate the fact that you're not and repent and turn back towards him because of the fact that the spirit is in fact in you. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, 
Yeah, I just say this, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know who asked the questions, but I would say if this is something that, you know, you're struggling with, uh, I mean, the bottom line is that typically if you are, um, uh, if that is of great concern to you and you genuinely desire to know and to, uh, to know God and to obey his commands and you are bothered by your sin, that is evidence that you are a Christian and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you because if the Spirit of God did not dwell in you and you did not love God, you wouldn't really be that bothered by your sin. Uh, it wouldn't bother you. You'd be okay with living in it. Um, and so I think it's just the way you know if you're regenerate, regenerated by the Holy Spirit is, is the fruit of the Spirit being born in your life in an increasing measure. Uh, and then when you sin, do you have remorse over that sin and a desire to turn away from it? And are you following through on turning away from it on a consistent basis? So, so I thought about it, the, the text in Romans where, uh, you know, Paul's talking about the grace and receiving and being changed and like receiving the spirit, now being able to live for God. And his his questioner, Paul's like, he's like he's being interviewed for a legal case. He's like, well, if sin makes grace abound, then do I just get to go and sin and make grace abound all the more? And what does Paul say? By no means. And so that, like, that is a true, a true evidence of the work of the Spirit in our lives is that we don't think we have now a license to go and see sin freely. That's not what being set free in Christ Jesus means. It means now that you're like, I can, I can live by the Spirit. I can obey the Word of God. I can live in my righteousness I don't get to live in sinfulness and just go, oh, now, God's get to, now God gets to be more gracious, as if that were even possible. That's good. All right, we're going to go ahead. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to get ready to close out our time of worship this morning. Um, so what we're going to do is, during our closing song, I'm going to have the uh, ushers are going to be coming down the aisles with baskets. So if you would like to give towards the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, this is our North American Missions offering, uh, you can do so now. Uh, You can either place your gift in the basket, or again, you can do that uh, online. And so we're uh, just going to take the time to to take that offering up as we sing. And also just be taking this time uh, just to, uh, you know, if if God has been, uh, you know, is calling you to respond in any way this morning, uh, take time in your seat to do that, uh, to pray. And I'd encourage you to, to thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit during this time. And if you're unsure of whether or not you are born again, whether or not you have the Holy Spirit, well, you can make sure right now. You can confess your sin and know that you'll be met with grace. You can confess your sin and repent of it and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved is what Scripture says. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we would love to talk with you after service. If you want help doing that and you'd like to talk to somebody more about that, talk to me, talk to Chad, talk to Thomas. Uh, we would love to speak with you a bit more about that. Um, so let's, uh, let's stand together uh, as we sing and uh, as we uh, close out in song this morning.